You're listening to Asia Perspectives from the Economist Intelligence Unit. I'm your host, Jesse Quigley Jones, Managing Healthcare Editor at the EIU in Asia. In this episode, we're going to talk about vaccine development for COVID 19. Last month, Economist Events organized a webinar titled Vaccine Development A Race to the Finish Line. In this webinar, I spoke with several experts in the field of vaccines, including Sarah Gilbert, Professor of Vaccinology at the University of Oxford, Melanie Saville, Director of Vaccine Research and Development at the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, or CEPI, and Jerome Kim, Director General at the International Vaccine Institute. It typically takes between 10 and 15 years to research, develop, and establish the safety and efficacy of a novel vaccine. But to prevent the pandemic from causing more health, social, and economic damage, the healthcare industry is in a race against time to develop a vaccine for COVID-19 and make it globally accessible, which could happen within the next 6 to 12 months. To start off, I asked Professor Gilbert to give us the basics of what vaccines do, how they work, and what needs to be taken into consideration when developing a candidate vaccine for COVID-19. So what the immune system does is patrol the body and look for anything that shouldn't be there. Any um, infectious organism that has come into the body that's in the wrong place, and that doesn't necessarily mean all bacteria or viruses, because some of the ones that form our microbiome are important and are well tolerated, but other ones that are in places that where they shouldn't be, in the bloodstream, in the lungs, for example, um, then the immune system needs to recognize that they're there and respond to them. And there are two main ways of responding, the cellular immune system and the um, antibodies that are formed. Um, and both come after the innate immune system, which is something that can happen very quickly. But if we want a full response to um, deal with an infection, um, we either have antibodies that can bind to the outside of a virus and stop it from infecting our cells, or we have um, cellular immune responses which can recognize cells that have already been infected and taken over by a virus if that's the pathogen and can destroy the cell that's being used to make more copies of the virus. And those two parts of the immune system work together. And after an infection, we're left with an immune memory. So if we encounter that pathogen again in the future, we will be able to respond very, very quickly the second time round. And what vaccines are trying to do is give us that immune memory without us having to have the disease in the first place. And there are lots of ways that vaccines can be made. Um, Traditionally, we used to make vaccines by starting from the infectious pathogen itself. So it might be um, the virus that is causing the disease, like the flu virus, for example, and either making a weakened version of that virus, which is capable of causing an infection, which is easily managed by the immune system. So it doesn't make us ill, but it leaves us with the immune memory, or by inactivating the virus and then using that as the vaccine. So it, there's no infection, but the body's exposed to um, killed virus and is able to make an immune response to what it sees there and then can lay down the immune memory and respond more quickly next time. More recently, we've moved away from using the pathogen itself and we're starting to use what we call platform technologies. And these are different vaccine technologies that we're, we can adapt to multiple different diseases. And this is really important in developing vaccines against emerging pathogens where we need to move quickly because we're able to develop the platform technologies and these might be DNA vaccines, RNA vaccines, viral vaccines, those are the kind of things that I mean. We can do a lot of work on the technology before we know what the pathogen is. And so we can understand 
how it interacts with the body to induce an immune response. Um, we can look at safety. We can look at the dose that we need to use. We can also work out all of the things like vaccine manufacturing. Um, and large-scale manufacturing takes some time to put into place, but we can do that before we even know what the infectious pathogen is because it's all related to the technology that we then adapt to the particular virus that we want to make a vaccine against. And for SARS-CoV-2, there are many vaccines in development using different platform technologies, all of them using the spike protein, which is the protein that's found covering the surface of the virus. Um, and the different technologies are being used as vaccines to develop immune responses against the spike, so that if somebody then becomes infected, infected with the virus, they have an immune response that can control it very quickly. So that's the aim in a nutshell. Thanks. So just thinking about the structure of this uh, virus, and you mentioned the spike, can you just very quickly let us know how does that influence the decisions that are made in terms of what is the platform, what is the, the vaccine design strategy that you look at? Um, is there something we can learn from the structure of that virus? So for most um, viruses, um, there will be proteins on the surface of the virus, and those are usually the ones that are the target for vaccine development. And in the case of coronaviruses, there's only one protein found on the surface, so it's a very simple choice. We use that protein as a vaccine antigen. For flu viruses, they have two major proteins on the surface, so you might want to choose one or the other or possibly consider using both. But for the coronaviruses, um, there's only one, so that's the one that everybody's using. And in terms of that protein being, um, I guess, stable, like, do we expect changes in that protein? Do you see the sort of um, shift in the antigen the way you might do with flu? Or are we looking at a very stable virus that we know what we're going after and we can be very focused in the way we're approaching this problem? Coronaviruses are much more genetically stable than flu, um, although we are seeing some mutations accumulating in, the, in various proteins of the virus as it passes through human populations. There does seem to have been a bit of adaptation. But what's important to remember is that the, um, the neutralizing antibodies that we're trying to induce by vaccination have to recognize the part of the spike protein that interacts with the human cell receptor. And if the virus mutates so that the antibody doesn't bind it, it's quite likely that that mutation will also mean that the virus can't bind the receptor on the human cell, and that means it can't get in, it's not infectious. So um, what we have seen is mutations that have been accumulated so far don't affect the ability of antibodies that have been generated by vaccination to bind to those viruses and neutralize those viruses. It's possible that in the future there will be more changes. But we also have the other part of the immune system, the T cell response, which is able to recognize cells that have been infected by the virus. And that works through not just the part of the, um, the spike protein that recognizes the human cell receptor, but across the whole of the spike protein. And so there are a small number of changes. T cells can still recognize the infected cell, even though there might be slight differences. So I'm not particularly concerned about um, mutations, meaning that vaccines won't work in the future. Obviously, it's something that we have to keep a close eye on um, and make sure that we're not seeing so many mutations that the vaccines become less effective. But because we're all using platform technologies to develop vaccines, it would be possible to switch out the antigen and put a new version in in the future should that be necessary. Thanks, Prof Gilbert. Um, so your team recently published um, phase one and two data from your candidate vaccine in the Oxford group. Can you just uh, quickly tell us about uh, that process to getting, getting that from identifying the um, SARS-CoV-2 virus through to where we're at today and, and maybe um, a little bit of an overview of what your study showed us in phase one and two? So what we did was, as soon as the sequence was published for the virus, we took the sequence for the, the spike protein. 
Uh, we made some changes that mean that it, it expresses better in our vaccine technology, um, the, the, which is an adenoviral vector. It's replication deficient, so although it's a live vaccine, it can't cause an infection when we use it as a vaccine. And we added the gene for the spike protein into our adenoviral vector, and we started to produce it, um, first of all, in the lab, um, checking that we got um, a construct that was genetically stable. We immunized some animals and looked at the immune response to the spike protein and saw that we got neutralizing antibodies and a T-cell response, as we'd expected. We took it into what's called GMP manufacturing, so very, very tightly controlled manufacturing conditions in a special facility where we manufacture vaccines that are suitable for going into clinical testing. Um, and while we were doing the manufacturing, we also did some larger scale um, animal studies. We did some um, studies in collaboration with um, NIH in the US where we vaccinated some monkeys and then deliberately exposed them to very large amounts of the SARS-CoV-2 virus and showed that that it was a safe vaccine. There is a concern with coronavirus vaccine development that um, you could see, um, for some vaccines, you could see worse disease after vaccination and then exposure to the virus than if that um, animal or that person hadn't been vaccinated. This was something that was seen with a small number of vaccines in the original SARS vaccine development. And um, we're, so we're aware of that problem and we want to make sure that it doesn't occur with the vaccines that are being developed now. So that's what we were testing for when we do those early animal studies. And we saw the right type of immune response that is not associated with the vaccine enhanced wow. disease. And indeed, when we vaccinated animals and then exposed them to the virus, they controlled the viral infection quickly uh, rather than having suffering advanced disease. So we were then, after um, getting the results of those studies in April, we were able to start our clinical studies. And because we've used this type of vaccine technology many times before, we already knew which dose we wanted to test. And we have a very good idea of the reactions people are going to have after vaccination, because everybody will be familiar with having uh, a sore arm or maybe feeling slightly flu-like symptoms after vaccination. And, and we have a very good understanding of that profile for this vaccine technology. So we started to vaccinate healthy people between the ages of 18 and 55, which is where vaccine trials always start. And um, we gave them one dose and we monitored the, their responses to the vaccination, both in terms of the, um, the reactogenicity, so the sore arm and the, and the flu-like symptoms and so on. We found that actually if people took paracetamol for 24 hours, starting from the time of vaccination, those symptoms were, were better managed. And then we started looking at the antibody responses and the T-cell responses in those people. And we saw that we got neutralizing antibodies induced and we got um, cellular immune responses induced. And that's what we hope to see from these vaccinations. We also saw that if we gave a second dose, we got stronger immune responses. And one problem that all vaccine developers have in developing vaccines against this new virus is that we don't know how strong the immune response has to be to protect people against any human coronavirus. We don't have vaccines for any of them. There are some vaccines for animal coronaviruses and they work well, there are licensed vaccines, but in humans, we don't know whether we need a low neutralizing antibody titer or a very high neutralizing antibody titer in order to be able to protect people. So our approach has been to go for a very high immune response by giving two doses of the vaccine in our future studies. It may be more that's necessary, but we need to determine vaccine efficacy. So having shown that the vaccine was safe and induced immune responses in that first study, what we're doing now is looking at um, the vaccine in older people, because it's really important to understand 
how well um, they will respond to vaccination. Typically, as we get older, we don't make such strong responses to vaccination, so we need to understand that for all the vaccines that are in development. And of course, the big question is, does the vaccine actually work? Does it protect people? If they're exposed to SARS-CoV-2, will it stop them getting infected? And that's what's being looked at in phase three trials now. Key to vaccine development is the upscaling of manufacturing and distribution capabilities, things that need to happen globally to roll out a new vaccine. Dr. Melanie Saville talked us through CEPI's role in that process. What everyone is trying to do is um, move from a, a process of getting to, to licensing a vaccine of decades to 12 to 18 months time frame. Um, and one of the things that um, CEPI um, has been doing is really working from the start of um, identification of the sequence with developers, um, so funding development of, of vaccine candidates. Um, and we currently have nine vaccine candidates um, that CEPI is funding in our portfolio with a wide range of vaccine platforms. Um, as, as Sarah pointed out, um, there are various ways to make um, vaccines. Um, and with that in mind, really accelerating vaccine development and under what we call the COVAX uh, uh, facility and COVAX organization, um, with the objective of uh, having 2 billion doses of vaccine available uh, by the end of 2021. Um, so while the clinical testing is ongoing, there is a very important effort to look at the manufacturing process for each of these vaccines. Um, and obviously to get 2 billion doses, if not more, by the end of 2021, we're almost doubling the world's vaccine uh, manufacturing capacity by doing that. So how do you do that? Um, when that may usually take 10 to 20 years, the, the normal process is to do the preclinical work, work at very small scale on the manufacturing process to get things in the clinic, see if things work in the clinic, um, and then really start scaling up the manufacturing process. So really working in sequence. And what we're doing differently here and with the manufacturing process is working in parallel. So while the clinical trials are ongoing, or even before the clinical trials are uh, ongoing, really start on developing the manufacturing process, but importantly, really scaling to large scale. Um, often talk about um, a number of liters in a bioreactor, so looking at large bioreactors, with 1,000, 2,000 liters, um, uh, making, making batches of vaccines. So this actually um, significantly accelerates the timeline um, to get to vaccine and the work can be done in parallel to the clinical trials. However, it does mean that um, we need to take um, risks because we are actually developing the manufacturing process before we know whether the vaccine works. So we may be um, putting really a large amount of money into that and then find that we cannot use the vaccine. So it does um, in, in, induce additional financial risk by doing this um, in parallel. But the consequences of not doing that is uh, when a vaccine is shown to be safe and effective, there will not be the doses that are, would be needed to, pre perfect, um, to protect the world's um, population. 
So we're looking at around speed, scale and access. So speed of development, scale of the manufacturing pro process, and then ensuring that there is access um, uh, to the vaccines really at a global level to make sure um, that all um, uh, populations, those most vulnerable, have access to vaccine and no one is waiting second in the line because of where they're living. That actually um, introduces another important factor for the manufacturing process, and that is having a good geographical footprint of your manufacturing plants um, to make sure indeed there is global access to the vaccines. As Dr. Savile said, we're aiming for 2 billion doses by the end of 2021, which is clearly not enough for everyone globally. So key questions arise. How do we ensure equity in the rollout? How do we ensure all populations that need them will have access to vaccines? And how much will the vaccine cost? Dr. Jerome Kim from the International Vaccine Institute provided some answers. The COVAX consortium, which is a, a combination of the efforts of CEPI, the World Health Organization, and GAVI, the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunization, is really designed to help secure a certain supply of vaccine, particularly upfront uh, for countries around the world. And so the 2 billion doses actually is, is in, a, in a sense, not just pulled out of thin air. I mean, I think that the idea would be to have roughly 20% of the necessary doses available by the end of 2021, so that countries around the world that have uh, signed up uh, and have agreed to the COVAX uh, mechanism would potentially be able to receive enough vaccine, for instance, to vaccinate the elderly and healthcare workers within a country, which would be, you know, potentially um, the first, the, the priority groups uh, for vaccination. Um, the the other question, part of the question I think you, you had asked or the, the questioner had asked was about the cost. And again, through this same mechanism, countries that are eligible, uh, for Gavi uh, provided vaccines, which are typically provided at low or no cost, um, would continue to receive the vaccine. Countries, of course, which are higher, high income, and many high income countries have signed up uh, for this, uh, would, would pay for the vaccines. And then the middle income countries, which are very important and actually represent the largest proportion of um, unvaccinated individuals um, uh, because they, their vaccines are no longer supported or, or cost subsidized by Gavi um, would, would receive vaccine for, for somewhat less than the high income countries. And, and all of this has to be negotiated. And it's very important that they're starting now because the last thing we would want would be for the, these vaccines to become available without a plan for equitable distribution. And so, you know, the work that the consortium is doing around COVAX uh, could be critical to ensure that countries around the world have access. You know, and, and again, this, this gets to something that, that Dr. Savile touched on, which is, you know, the wealthier countries, you know, the United States, for instance, is, is asking the companies to actually manufacture vaccine at risk so that, say, by December or January or February of next year, uh, if a vaccine is shown to be safe and effective, the country will have two to 300 million doses of the vaccine available. Now, and separate deals have been made by uh, European Union countries. And I think COVAX provides a mechanism for uh, poorer countries, for countries that are small, countries that don't have uh, large manufacturing industries, uh, to have access to enough vaccine to vaccinate the target populations at highest risk. I asked Dr. Kim, how long will it take to vaccinate the world's population? And if that is even a realistic goal in the short term? 
What's the strategy for rollout of COVID-19 vaccines? The head of WHO actually made a, a comment um, that might have been misinterpreted. He said there are no silver bullets. Uh, for you know, The vaccine is not going to be a silver bullet. And in a sense, that's correct. I mean, a vaccine will make uh, will be a tremendous contribution to getting us back to you know the old normal. Um, but it's not going to happen overnight. It's not a quick and easy solution. It is an important part of a comprehensive solution. But as I think both Dr. Professor Gilbert and, and Dr. Savile have noted, I mean, you have to prove that the vaccine works, and there's a lot of effort and billions of dollars being put on that effort. Uh, then you have to make it in quantity and at high quality, and, and Dr. Savile has addressed that. And then you have to design the way to distribute it around the world. And, you know, we know that the world can uh, vaccinate. I mean, if you look at the vaccination rates that Gavi reports for the basic uh, pediatric vaccines, we have vaccination rates above 80 percent in most countries. And it also gets to the fact that when a vaccine becomes available, there is a mechanism to get it out there, to get it into people, uh, as long as we have access to sufficient quantities of vaccine. Um, is it going to happen in six months? Probably not. The important thing is to vaccinate the populations at greatest risk and then to gradually scale up a program that will allow you to vaccinate enough people so that maybe COVID doesn't go away. But what you won't see are these continuous large waves of infections and deaths, which has characterized the response to date. So that by vaccinating enough people, you may have one or two people who get infected, but they're not going to spread it in the community because there will be sufficient numbers of people who won't be infectable. Uh, who will block the spread. But what happens after we get vaccinated? Will it confer long-term immunity? I asked Professor Gilbert to tell us what they found out in this regard from the Oxford study. Obviously, it's going to take time to accumulate the data so that we can fully understand that. What you see with any vaccine is that you get a, uh, a strong response shortly after vaccination in the first few weeks. Typically, T-cells peak at two weeks and antibodies peak at four weeks. And that's, that's the peak response. That's what we call it. From that, the response will decline. Um, and that's what we expect to see with any vaccination. It also happens after natural infections as well. But then the question is, how much does it decline? And is it then maintained at a lower level for a long period of time? But that's only um, looking at antibodies that are present in the blood at any one time and not counting on the fact that that person will also have some immune memory, which can then respond very quickly when they get reinfected. So it's a complex situation to understand uh, when we start um, taking blood samples from people over long periods of time and trying to understand how much immune um, memory they have, as well as the antibodies that are already in their blood and ready to go. So what we've seen with um, a vaccine that we made against another coronavirus, MERS coronavirus, is that antibodies plateaued at about six months. So they came down from the peak and reached a lower level, but then they stayed at that level a year later when we finished that particular trial. They were still present and obviously the immune memory was there as well. So it's not something that's going to die away very quickly after vaccination, but it also comes back to the, the point I was making about the fact that we don't understand what level of antibodies we need to protect people against this coronavirus. Now, for some viruses like measles, you only need a very low level of neutralizing antibodies to get a very good protection against measles virus. And measles vaccines do tend to last a long time. But for other viruses, we need a higher level of um, antibodies to give protection when we encounter the virus. And we don't understand what that level is yet for the coronaviruses. So I don't think that the vaccines are going to be once for life. 
I do think that we're going to um, have immunity that lasts for at least some of the vaccine technologies, and they won't all be the same, uh, but in some cases it will last for more than a year. Um, and it will probably be better maintained in, in young people than it is in older people, because again, um, we'll see less of a response in the first place when we vaccinate people over the age of 70, for example, and that response may not be maintained as well. So we might end up with different vaccination regimens, different schedules for people depending on their age, um, uh, with more frequent or possibly higher dose vaccinations for the oldest members of the population so that we can try to get them the best immune response. So it's a complex situation. Uh, it's one that we will have to monitor as the vaccines continue in development. But let's say we get the vaccine ready, manufactured and distributed. Will everyone be willing to receive them? The issue of vaccine hesitancy, where people reject vaccination, is a global barrier to good public health. I asked our three experts what needs to be done to give people the confidence to receive the vaccines after all the tests are done to assess efficacy and safety. So I think we've, we've all talked a little bit around the importance always of, even though we're moving at great speed, of, um, of, of not missing the steps of going through the clinical trials, well-designed, controlled clinical trials um, to demonstrate the safety profile and the effectiveness um, of the vaccine. And always with a vaccine, it's a balance in, team, in terms of benefit and risk. We know that with all vaccines, you do get some side effects, and those side effects obviously have to um, outweigh the benefit that you have. Um, so there does need to be um, rigorous safety testing um, that clearly needs to be um, communicated to everybody. I think the one thing in this situation that um, we are moving forward indeed uh, rapidly, we will be getting the sizes of safety databases from um, from the candidates that will meet the types of requirements that regulators would like to see um, to get the vaccine licensed. Um, but I think it will be also important to continue the monitoring after they're licensed and after they're used, um, because you continue to gather data um, on, on a specific vaccine. Um, but in terms of um, hesitancy um, specifically, it's a really complex question. I think it's important to have the data at hand so people can understand, um, you know, the profile of the vaccine and obviously make their choice. And Dr. Kim, can I ask you for your opinion on this topic as well? Because uh, I think it's important and it's one of those tricky ones. And, and there's examples certainly within Asia in the last couple of years where we've had um, safety concerns around vaccines that have been rolled out and there's been a bit of a negative impact on the broader vaccination immunization programs. So from your perspective, um, are, we, are we in the right direction to collect the right safety data and to give people the confidence around these new vaccine platforms? So I think Dr. Savile has really gotten to the, the core of this. I mean, the trials that are currently being anticipated uh, to show safety and efficacy of these vaccines are going to be very large, tens of thousands of people. So that will give us the kind of robust uh, immediate safety database to say to, to assure people that you know that the vaccines that they get are both safe and they prevent infection or disease. I think that the one part that we won't have as much information on is the longer term impact. So what will happen at year um, at the end of year one or at the end of year two? What happens when the antibody, the neutralizing antibody that Professor Gilbert talked about, starts to 
decay, will you start to see a worsening of infection, for instance, as, as happened with a, with a previous vaccine? And, and those are the kinds of things where CEPI, uh, the manufacturers, um, the other funders, the people maybe in Operation Warp Speed, will need to ensure the people who volunteer for trials, phase one, phase two, and phase three, are followed for an adequate period of time so that we understand the characteristics of what happens to the immune response after um, vaccination, and also that we understand uh, whether people who are vaccinated uh, are subject to increased risk. I mean, we really have, and, and, and actually Professor Offit often makes a point of this, um, you know, the average American parent has never seen measles or chickenpox. 26 individual shots are given to their children for 14 different diseases, and acceptance is in the 80% range. I mean, easy acceptance. Because people have faith that vaccines are safe and efficacious, and you know, the vaccine industry and, and public health figures have gone to, you know, to, to great length to make sure that the things we use protect people against infection and disease. So we can't cut corners uh, on that part. And I think that, you know, there's a commitment um, by developers like Professor Gilbert and by organizations like SEPI and IBI um, to ensure that, that we, can, we can look people in the eye and tell them that these vaccines are safe and efficacious. I, I think that the other part of this is, you know, there are, you know, groups saying, well, we haven't started phase one yet, but in, you know, next month, the vaccine will be approved. You know, that really isn't the kind of, of statements uh, that we ought to make. We really ought to be able to show people the data, convince people, public health figures, citizens, that the vaccines are safe and efficacious. And that is going to be our, our, best, uh, our best approach to dealing with hesitancy. Thanks, Dr. Kim. And, and finally, Professor Gilbert, um, any last word on this? We'll be looking to you for you know, longer-term data after your phase three studies and proving the safety of this in the long term. So uh, is there anything that we can learn from the data you have on the platform you're using, or what are the plans for looking at your vaccine in the long term in terms of assuring safety of that? So when we're thinking about the safety of the vaccine, there are lots of different things that we need to think about. So it's a question of understanding what could possibly go wrong and then understanding if it looks like it could happen with this vaccine. So one part of vaccine safety is comes into manufacturing. We have to make sure that the vaccines we're producing are not contaminated with any other viruses. And a huge amount of efforts goes into ensuring, first of all, that all the materials that are used to make the vaccines are free of any other viruses, what we call adventitious agents, things that shouldn't be there. And that when we've made the vaccine, uh, again, it's tested at multiple stages to make sure that it's not contaminated with anything else that shouldn't be there. So that's one part of ensuring vaccine safety. And a great deal of effort goes into preparing for success and then testing to see that we have been successful in that manufacturing and no batch of vaccine will be released for use unless all of those steps have, have gone through. So that's one aspect of vaccine safety. Then another aspect is understanding immune phenomenon that can lead to adverse reactions. So I was talking about using the animal testing to look for enhanced disease after vaccination. That's something that was seen in some early SARS vaccine development in animal studies. And we have a good understanding of why now, of what type of immune response leads to that. And so we've been able in our testing to look at the type of immune response that we generate and show that it's the opposite type of immune response. It's the one that's protective and not the one that can lead to enhanced disease after vaccination. And we've gone further and shown that in animals who are vaccinated and then exposed to the virus, they don't get enhanced disease after vaccination. And then there's another 
phenomenon that, that can come into play, which as we've um, seen with, with other vaccines, is that as the antibody response decays, that may also cause a problem. That's much more difficult to study. Um, as Dr. Kim was talking about, and it's something that we will we can only do by following up the subjects long term. But because we know that um, we have a, um, a complete immune response induced by vaccination, it's not just the antibodies, it's the T cell memory is present as well. Um, we don't consider it's, it's likely to be an issue, but obviously it's something that we will continue to monitor our subjects for as we go through the clinical trials. I think often vaccine hesitancy is based on some misunderstandings and maybe some um, slightly hysterical reporting by people who don't understand vaccines, uh, uh, complaints about what's in vaccines. Well, I, I would like people to have a little bit more of an understanding of how vaccines are made um, and the fact that for COVID-19, there won't be one vaccine. There will be multiple vaccines. They all have to be tested and we have to know that they're safe and that they're effective. But I would expect that if one of these vaccines that's now in development is successful and is effective at preventing infection and disease, then we will see that there will be multiple other vaccines who, which will also be effective uh, and they may be using different technologies. And so it's a question of understanding a little bit more about how vaccines are made, what they consist of, before people just um, dismiss them and say, oh, I don't want vaccines because they have unpleasant things in them. Actually, they're made in different ways. They're very carefully produced and very carefully tested. Uh, and, and our approach has been to try to provide information for people so that they can have a better understanding of, what, of how vaccines are made and what it is that we need them to do. And finally, what is the probability of the worst case scenario? What are the key milestones that we should be looking out for next? I asked the three experts to share their thoughts. I think the data that we've seen so far um, from a number of candidates, whether that's preclinical testing or, or the very early clinical results that we've seen that show that the, the immune response is the type of profile that we think is likely to be successful at, at preventing disease or at least severe disease. Um, I, I think we can say that those results are promising, but it's still early days. It's making the assumption that the spike protein is indeed the key um, element of, of the virus that we should pay attention to. I think most people believe that is the case. If that is not the case, then, then indeed um, we'd have to rethink in, indeed what would be the most appropriate vaccine. But um, um, things are pointing that that is likely to be the, the, the candidate. I think the really the next step is is the demonstration of the efficacy of the vaccine. That um, is is really the important step to show um, that it it can prevent disease um, and in particular in preventing disease in those most at risk of of the severe disease. Thank you, Dr. Kim. What are you most excited to see next as the key milestone that we'll be hitting? I agree with Dr. Sell. I think that the technical accomplishment of being able to prove that a vaccine works is something we can do. Whether we can do it in 12 to 18 months, I think, is, is a separate question, but I'm, I'm reasonably optimistic. I think that the things that I'm looking forward to hearing and timeline-wise are really around manufacturing and really progress in the COVAX uh, mechanism uh, to really ensure that we can have enough of probably more than one vaccine uh, at high quality and in sufficient quantity. And, and now, you know, we're, as, as Dr. Seville said, we're, we're 2 billion doses is a, is a high target considering what we currently make. I mean, surge capacity is there, but we need to be able to make it. 
And then we actually have to have the plan to distribute it and use it. And both of those tasks are as large as the original task of proving that the vaccine works. And I'm really looking forward to hearing more development on both of those topics. Thanks, Dr. Kim. And finally, Professor Gilbert, same question to you. What are you most excited to see next? I'm really excited to see vaccine efficacy results. So we have vaccines going to phase three trials now, randomized controlled trials where um, PCR-confirmed um, COVID-19 infection will be the endpoint of those trials. And in order to get a result in those trials, they have to be done in parts of the world where there are infections um, happening so that the control group does become infected and we can look at the effect of the vaccine. I, I think there will be vaccines that have some effect on COVID-19. The big question is whether that's going to be sterilizing immunity or prevention of severe disease or some lesser effect. Will it block transmission? Um, how effective will these vaccines be? That remains to be seen. But um, as soon as we see an efficacy result from any one of the vaccines, we'll have a much better understanding of what all the other vaccines have to do. So that's a really big milestone. And that's all for this episode of Asia Perspectives by the Economist Intelligence Unit. Thank you for listening. On November 16th to 20th, Economist Events will be hosting a virtual Future of Healthcare Week. If you're interested in the event, visit futureofhealthcare.economist.com or sign up for our Future of Healthcare Inside Hour webinars. You can also find the full recording of the vaccines webinar there. If you have any feedback or questions about this podcast or any aspect of work from the Economist Intelligence Unit, you can email us on asiaperspectives at economist.com. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure you don't miss an episode.